All right, welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And we're a week late, but guys, that it, that's that's life. Yeah, Emlyn um started a farm. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I got my hands in too many pots, guys. Uh, but but we're here. Uh-huh. Better late than yeah, never. I think so. Um, and I've got a fun and strange and short little uh, morsel of a story Ooh, for you. Interesting. Okay, I'm very excited. So today, uh, well, first shout out to Dr. Todd Pearson, who's a professor mm-hmm. at Kennesaw State University, for the suggestion for today's Steminist. Oh, nice. And because this is his favorite um, lady, historical woman cool. in science. Oh, I'm so excited. Who I'd, who I'd never heard about. Um, and it's a topic or like a system we haven't worked in. So oh. I was like, let's do oh, it. That's going to be. Oh, I'm, I'm very interested now. <laughs> Okay, so I have a question. Okay. Ask away. The Southern Appalachians Mm -hmm. have the highest diversity of what amphibian taxa in the world? Salamanders. Salamanders! (laughs) Yes, so today we're going to be talking about the herpetologist, specifically salamander expert, and anatomist Inez Whipple Wilder, who also has the best name Yeah. Ever. It sounds like a um, cartoon or like she'd be a story, like in a children's story. Yes. Yeah, I feel like she would should be in Willy Wonka. I don't know why. I, <laughs> oh. I think that's because Gene Wilder yeah. was in Willy Wonka. And no relation. Oh, now I can't remember um, any of the characters' names. Oompa Loompa. Oompa Loompa, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uncle Joe. Who sucks. Veronica Veruca beef with Uncle Joe. something? Ver- Veruca. Veruca Salt. I yeah. don't know. Anyways. Okay. So, <laughs> so we're going to talk about Inez Whipple Wilder today. Ew. So Inez was born Inez Luan uh, Whipple on May 19th, 1871 Whoa. in Diamond Hill, Cumberland, uh, Rhode Island. So she's old. Well, she's not still alive. <laughs> Right? <laughs> no. She no, she's not still she would be 150 oh, years old. Wow. Oldest living person. Um no, she's just um an Yeah, from an older an early time or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. Earlier. Time. Uh she was also the youngest of three children. Her father was Eliab Daniel and her mother was Sarah Whipple. Wow. Uh, and Sarah Whipple was a public school teacher for 10 years before her marriage. So education was nice. like a big part of her Great. life. Always a good sign. Okay. <laughs> Always a good sign that you're going to get educated. Always. It seems so, like many of the people we discuss had parents that supported their education, which is just yes. like... 
Wow, what a game changer. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Someone who is one, like, able to focus on your education and is interested in you being educated. Right. Um, yeah. Which is, yeah, great. Okay, so according to an elaborate history and genealogy of the Ballows in Ooh. America, uh, the Whipples were, quote, an intelligent, morally upright, and reputable family oh. throughout, parents and children. <sighs> I have a lot of quotes because there's, like, so little information that truly I'm grasping at straws <laughs> to make a story out of this. I like saying <laughs> that they're morally, what was it, upright or something? Morally upright and reputable. Right. Like, basically just meaning yeah. what? They had jobs and probably, like, weren't in jail all the time or something. And probably went to church yeah. or something. Went to yeah, I would imagine it's... Yeah. yeah, okay. Whenever it says morally, I always think they mean, like... Church, church going. Church. Yep. Okay. So we don't know very much, besides being part of a morally upright and reputable family, I don't know very much about her childhood. Yeah. Um, what I do know is that she graduated from Rhode Island Normal School, which was uh, like Rhode Island College. Okay. Um, in 1880. Wow. And okay. wait, that doesn't make sense. That's probably a high school. When we've talked about normal schools before i think that mm-hmm. they were high schools but then sometimes they were also teaching colleges so i think this was a high okay. school because so she she graduated from Rhode island normal school in 1890 okay and then went on um maybe that's not right there, it was hard to figure out de- yeah, de- yeah, dates okay. so she graduated from there and then she went on to brown university to receive her phb oh. which i had never heard of before which is a bachelor's of philosophy oh. which i guess is like a bachelor's degree but you do a lot of research uh, during your you undergrad know, it just goes to show how new our whole educational system you know like it's always changing Maybe what yeah. if in a hundred years people are like PhD, like what do- doctor of philosophy, but they s- studied science, like you know what I? Mm-hmm. They're gonna be like, this means nothing yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I worked, I worked so long on yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> PhD. I've never heard of that. I don't think anyone Mm-mm. we know, but you know, it's possible, like. If articles written later about people will sometimes just call things a PhD when they were a PhD, technically, just to kind of translate through the times. Yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting. And this was all from Wikipedia. So also, you know. Yeah. Who knows? It did. I was like, do they mean PhD and they just messed up? But then you click on what PhD is and it does say Bachelor's of Philosophy. So... But yeah, yeah, you'll learn something new. So she got her equivalent of like a research heavy bachelor's in 1900, which doesn't I don't think that's correct. (laughs) That date. None of these dates. Maybe it is. But then she would be 29. Okay, so that could be. But, you know, it's like. But maybe. She could have taken a class gone home you know that's the time when people would go on these long summer vacations and like you know everything just took longer (laughs) (laughs) 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they, maybe she just summer vacationed her way to. <laughs> they'd go to their um, summer home, or they're like this, or they'd travel for months to go to California to see someone, or I don't know. Things just like took longer than I feel like it wasn't. <laughs> if you didn't have the money for your classes in semester, you just wait till the semester after. Like you work for a bit and then mm-hmm. you continue. Who knows? Who knows? So I'm telling you, I don't know very much about that. Yes. I'm I'm working with what I could find. But after, okay, so after receiving her PhD, um, she went back and taught at her alma mater, the Rhode Island Normal School, and also taught at Northampton High School for two years. Oh, nice. She then became an instructor of zoology at Smith College in 1902. Oh, cool. Okay. So I'm guessing she was doing a lot, of, you know, mostly teaching and some some research because she had she didn't have like a master's or, or a PhD at right. that time. Uh, while she was teaching at Smith, she received her master's um, from Smith College in 1904. Okay. Though I couldn't find what her master's was on. Yeah. And she worked as a research assistant for Harris Hawthorne Wilder. Oh, interesting, interesting. Ooh. Coincidence? In 1904. (laughs) Probably not. In 1904, the year she got her master's, Inez published a paper entitled The Ventral Surface of the Mammalian Chiridium. Oh. The, with special reference to the conditions found in man. Oh, um, what the heck is a chiridium? So, <laughs> I don't, actually, I don't know, but I'll tell you what the study's about yeah. <laughs> in general. So, um, in this, this was an influential study. And in it, Inez described how early developmental stages of the palms and feet of mammals influenced their later development of the, like, ridges and patterns that you see on your hands and palms and feet. Oh, okay. Um, Makes sense. So, like, how developmentally how you get all of these ridges um, and creases and all the things that, you know, people who read your palms might be interested in. Right, right. Well, it's Um, the spirits moving through you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so that's what she described. I mean, no, she didn't right. describe the spirits. Uh, this work that she did was an early contribution to dermatoglyphics. Dermato- dermatoglyphics, okay. which is the study of fingerprints. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Cool. And so this work was the most significant study of like the ridges and patterns um, in non-human animals at that time. Wow, okay. I'm, like, looking at my fingerprints right now. It's, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and there's, like, man, I tried to delve into this, and it just got yeah you- abo- above my head, and, like, they're, like, there's, like, a, I guess a big argument whether or not arches or whorls are, like, the more evolved what? Um, print type pattern yeah. of the fingerprints Evolved? like whether or not you just you have like an arch or whether or not you have like a circular kind of whirl i have both like because one may be um i think they're like whirls <laughs> grip better and so are the the more ancestral what how do we Anyways, know there was a- they could just be <laughs> random right um well i guess the argument is that 
you know, when we were like using our hands more for like climbing and living in trees and things like that, um, there was more selection on your palms having like the best grip. Mm. And so these patterns contributed to the grip you could have on, you know, trees and your ability to like, you know, not fall out of trees. And so there was big selection for that. And so as we've no longer needed, we're not using our like palms to keep ourselves on trees anymore. Selection has uh, relaxed. (laughs) Okay. Well, I personally, I guess some people who are avid tree climbers or rock climbers may be, um, but essentially there's really relaxed selection now on like the patterns Right. And ridges of our, our palms and fingerprints. And so we get a lot more variation in those patterns because they're not under a strong selection. And that's why, because there's relaxed selection, there's really high individual variation. And so that's why we can use fingerprints as like yeah. a personal identification. Right, right. Because they're not under like strong selection to be all whorls yeah. or arches or whatnot. Anyways, that is what I gleaned from from my dive into dermatoglyphics last night. Okay. Anyways, so um, on July 26th, 1906, Harris Hawthorne Wilder and Inez Whipple were married in Boston. Harris Wilder himself uh, published widely on anatomy, genetics, and anthropology, and um Inez Whipple was much more on like physiology um much more she worked much more on like the biology life history physiology histology of organisms and so they kind of complemented each other nicely um and so combined the couple were the most prominent American researchers on fingerprint morphology of the early 20th century wow how did she get so, into salamanders? I know, I know you'll get there, but I'm like, <laughs> they're just I don't so know. different. They just, I they're just dabblers. Dabblers. They just yeah, dabble. Yeah, that's cool. I don't know. Why not? You know. So while I was trying to learn more about Inez, I ran into a very strange mm. article that I could only find the abstract of. Oh, and it's not about her. Okay. It's about Harris Hawthorne Wilder. But I just want to read you the title and the abstract. And then I want us to talk (laughs) a little bit. Okay, I'm really... I'm really... I'm fleshing out. I'm trying to flesh this out. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, I'm going to read you the abstract from a research article from the journal Historical Archaeology entitled, quote... Glass Cabinets and Little Black Boxes, the Collections of H.H. Wilder and the Curious Case of His Human Hair Samples. No. (laughs) I don't know. It's such a puzzling title. Okay. Now let me read you this abstract and you tell me what you think any of this Uh means. Quote. Harris Hawthorne Wilder, a professor of zoology at Smith College, was trained in anatomy and physical anthropology in Germany at the end of the 19th century. He taught at Smith College, a private liberal arts college for women, from 1892 to 1927. Not unusual for the times, his interests in archaeology and anthropology were very broad. 
He excavated sites in what can be considered, at best, dubious ethical circumstances, <gasps> and created a wide-ranging collection of artifacts, human remains, and anatomical specimens. What? One of the more curious collections was of human hair samples, which included, quote, specimens from students at Smith College, <gasps> his own family members, and a small subcategory he referred to as, quote, ethnics. Ooh. We chart his proclivity for collecting many items of an anatomical, archaeological, or anthropological nature and focus on his human hair samples to contextualize the nature of these collections in terms of late 19th and early 20th century views on race, ethnicity, and gender in anthropology. We take the position that to understand this collection more fully, it is essential to know the life and times of its collector, including his role in the academic history of the Connecticut Valley, and we suggest that Wilder himself was conflicted as to its meaning and purpose. <gasps> oh, boy. I mean, it just sounds like... <laughs> it's It does What's happening? sound like... I mean, at that time, people mm. were curious but did not have enough sensitivity or enough understanding to be like sensitive and view others with like the humanity they viewed themselves with you know what i mean mm -hmm. or like other people's remains were like oh this is interesting and fun and i want to keep it not like this these are people's yes. family members or like yeah that's just it sounds like he's kind of almost a typical anthropologist of the time to be honest <laughs> Right? Is that yeah, it's just like, it's such a strange abstract yeah. of like, his dubious ethical circumstances, his quote unquote specimens from students, <laughs> like, yeah, that is <laughs> I weird. don't know. It's probably, it's just, a, and I couldn't find the paper. So it's just like, I was tantalized. Right. Good job, authors. You tantalized me. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, what sounds Anyways. weird to me, I mean, maybe he wrote a bunch of articles about all of his specimens, but I think it's weird that he was just collecting this stuff and maybe not <laughs> writing articles about it. Like, you know what I mean? Hey, yeah, we know plenty of those scientists. Yeah. Look in my freaking look in my freaking basement. Like, he's just like I mean, don't. Authorities. A hobbyist. Um, like it makes they make him yeah. sound like a hobbyist, like a creepy hobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um who like probably oh, thought of himself as like above other people, which is how you can even like study people in that manner, you know, like looking at mm -hmm. other humans as like curiosities rather than as human beings. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah, so it, it would be interesting to know more, but this it isn't about him, but I thought that was just like a, such a wild um, title. Yeah, and I mean, probably it tells us a little bit about, you know, the kind of thing, the the people that Inez surrounded herself with. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. And the curiosities she might have had to live next to. <laughs> yeah, just like piles of hair. Oh, boy. You know, oh there was a okay. girl at my high school who, in our senior year, went around asking everyone for a piece of their hair to put in a journal. Like a yearbook of hair. Why? 
You know, there's there's such a fine line between scientist and hoarder, and like, yeah, she was unique. She is, I mean, she is like really nice. So I think I gave her my hair, which maybe she's like sequencing her. You know, maybe she's like making a hair catalog for uh, forensic purposes. Maybe she's trying to sol- solve a yeah. murder. Was there any unsolved murders in your uh, high school that she oh, maybe was doing some like no. detective work? No, no, no. That's good. I'm glad yeah. about that. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> um, anyways. So in 1914, Inez published a book entitled Laboratory Studies in Mammalian Anatomy, which was widely used Ooh. and then had like a second edition. That's cool. In it, Inez argued that the variation and uniqueness in human fingerprints was the result of their vestigial nature. We kind of talked about this right, um, right. before. And the idea that, like, when Homo sapien ancestors lived in trees, the ridges act as tre- acted as tread to prevent slipping and thus were h- more highly regulated. Um, however, as we came out of trees and became more terrestrial, there was less selection on the ridges and texture of our digits and pads allowing for more variation. And so it's because of that that we're able to use, um, like, fingerprinting because everybody has, like, very unique fingerprints. Right, right. Cool. Wow, so she studied fingerprints for a while, seems like. Yeah, Yeah. for at least like 10 10 years. I mean, they were the, you know, leading (laughs) fingerprint fingerprint people. Then they transitioned from being the most prominent American researchers of fingerprint biology or morphology to um having the most active research program in salamander biology in the world okay okay i thought you're gonna i thought there's gonna be a middle thing like for a second oh and given everything you said about uh her husband Mm. i was like oh my god what is it gonna be like i'm really scared (laughs) okay cool cool we're going to the salamanders yes we're now in salamander land okay So while they both studied salamanders, they worked independently and never published together. Okay. Weird. Which I think is probably, you know, you can see it both ways, but I think often back then, if you could do that, that was probably best because so often if you wrote stuff with your husband, it was all credited to him. That's true. Yeah. It's actually... Yeah, you're right. If a lot of like wife husband wife duos back like scientist duos, it's always like, oh, the wife was an assistant. She was never like the creative mm-hmm. genius of the two or something. Yep. Yeah. Or intellectual. And I yeah. I forget I forget who we had talked about, but there was one husband and wife couple that we've talked about in the past where like they decided the the like husband was like I think we shouldn't publish together because they're just going to credit me fully. Was that Marie and Curie? And so, like, they made a distinct... Um, I don't think it was Marie Curie. I think it was some other duo. Mm. There's a lot of duos. Um, but I don't remember who yeah. it is off the top of my mm-hmm. head. It could have been Marie Curie, yeah. but I, I thought it was a maybe less prominent. Maybe the Clarks, like maybe Phipps, Clark. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, I think it was a more recent... Anyways. But yeah, so this is like... Things that people uh, in the past have actively decided in order to, like, combat sexism. Oh, my gosh. So crazy. (sighs) I know. Okay. 
But so, yeah, so they they worked independently and never published together. But together, they had this giant active salamander biology awesome. research program. So cool. He, Harris had discovered the plethodontids were this lungless family of salamanders. Ooh. And then uh, Emmett and Inez, so then Inez, in combination with Emmett Dunn, who also joined this, like, research group, uh, they proposed an explanation for the evolu- evolutionary loss of lungs in this group. Oh, wow. Okay. And Inez was also the first one to name and describe nasolabial grooves, which are these olfactory structures found in plethodontid salamanders um, that allow them to breathe while submerged. So there's a lot of really cool, like, evolution, evolutionary work that they did in addition to, um, like, biology and anatomy and things like that. So Inez studied two salamander species in depth during her career, uh, Desmognathus fuscus and Euricea bislineata, um, publishing a total of 13 papers on salamander biology. One paper was The Life History of Desmognathus fuscus, or fusca, uh, which is this like 40-page paper in the Biological Bulletin, which focuses on the life history behaviors, anatomy, histology, embryology, and physiology of this species. Wow. So it's like re- it's really yeah. in-depth from like many, many years of studying them. And it's pretty cool. She um, so she like taught a lot of different courses at Smith and I and used the salamanders for like hands-on work for a lot of these classes. So these descriptions and all of this work came from like class studies that she did while teaching students uh, i love when so like kind of hands yeah, on i love that getting the students kind of involved in your research mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah really cool um so you know this paper had many detailed illustrations of the biology and nat- anatomy of this species but also some interesting like anecdotes that only you could get <gasps> away with i feel like in the 1900 <laughs> like early yeah 1900s you know so i want to read you one yeah this one little story okay Okay. uh inez says quote on the evening of may 13th 1908 i isolated in a small terrarium a large male and a female through the abdominal wall of which large eggs could be seen it was discovered the next morning however that another smaller male was also present in the terrarium probably having been carried over unobserved in transferring some wet leaves on the following morning may 14th the female and this smaller male were found lying upon the earth upon some wet leaves the ventral surfaces of their bodies in contact they reacted so quickly however to the disturbance of the leaves that beyond this very hasty observation as to their general position i cannot state I can state nothing definite as to methods of clasping or exact regions of contact. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh it's like, God. just sounds like she walked into two, like two lovers. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's also like making such a big deal out of them, like touching each other's ventral surfaces, right? <laughs> like, let's make this a whole poetic moment for the salamanders. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, I kind of wish that natural history papers could still be like that, but and as yeah, but we're just not. We have to be more straightforward now. They were touching at two o two p.m. Ventral surfaces touch. Yeah, I mean, 
I think it would have been fun because I had to in under well in undergrad I did research on chameleons and like I took a lot of videos of them mating. Yeah. And I'm just like can't imagine having like a little natural history note where I like try to describe in poetic detail them like (laughs) mating. That's really funny. Uh yeah. Anyways, so yeah, just thought that was a little fun. Yeah, I love that. I love old old papers like that. Mm-hmm. In 1925, she then published the Morphology of Amphibian Metamorphos, Mor- Metamorphosis, oh. which was a book describing the comparative biology of the two species she primarily focused on, as well as the new notif- notothalamus virid viridescence sorry um notothalamus viridescence like many species of salamander uricea bislineata are um to salamanders often they are aquatic as larvae and then later like three years or so varies between species they metamorphose into adult terrestrial forms right so they go from aquatic to terrestrial, kind like of, you a know, frog. like fro- a lot yeah. of frogs do. Yeah. Um, and this metamorphosis from the aquatic larval stage to terrestrial adult stage is dramatic and can be used to help understand the evolutionary transition from aquatic vertebrate life to terrestrial mm-hmm. life. So she, again, kind of expands. She's focusing on the biology of these species but playing into a context of trying to help understand the tr- that tr- evolutionary transition from vertebrates being in water to vertebrates being in yeah. land, because there's so many physiological things that have to be different. Yeah, like just the breathing. Between living right, in water. Right. Yeah. yeah. That understanding how single organisms can transition between these stages can help us understand how that might have happened, like over Definitely. evolutionary time. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, when are so for salamanders, this, do they just look like smaller versions, or are they like, like when like frogs go from tadpole to frog, and they have all these weird, you know, the the transformation is like pretty crazy. But are young yeah. salamanders? Do they just look like tiny, like smaller salamanders? They have more like. Finned oh. tails, and I—they're more like fish-like, yeah. but with still like they still have their arms. Yeah. Like they're unlike tadpoles, I think, of like right, the some that right. I know yeah, of. Yeah, I was just so it's not as dramatic yeah. as okay. frogs. I wouldn't say. Cool. Yeah. Um. So for this work, Inez coupled observations made concerning the form and activities of living salamanders. So she looked at the activities of living salamanders at all these different developmental stages and then coupled this with anatomical and histological studies at those stages as well. Nice. All right. So Harris died in February 1928, um, at which time Inez became the chair of the Smith College Department of Zoology. Wow, okay. With, However, with just enough time to finish editing her husband's autobiography, Inez died of a long-term illness the following year on April 29th. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, 1929. So, like, on my anniversary. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, 
a lot of years before my anniversary, but whatever. Um, at the so at the age of fifty seven. Wow. Okay. Pretty young. Hmm. Now, Smith College named one of their residential houses after Harris and Inez Wilder, naming it the Wilder House in nineteen thirty. So I think still one of the residential colleges or one residential houses of Smith is named after them. Wilder is such a cool name. I agree. <laughs> uh, well, I like her. Like her maiden name is Whipple, yeah, which right. I think is also like Whipple Wilder is just like, yeah. yeah. Inez Whipple Wilder. <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. So pleasing. So cool. She also was honored uh, by having the Blue Ridge Two-Line Salamander named after her um, Eurycia Wild- Wilder Wilderai. Yeah. Um, and I guess I didn't mention this earlier, but while Inez, when she got her master's, she never got officially a PhD, but like, you know, she did so much research, research and all that stuff that... She became an associate professor in 1914 and a full professor at Smith College in 1922. Oh, nice. That's great. Yeah. So she was a full professor and then temporarily the chair of Smith College Department of Zoology before her death. Um, And that's all the information I could find on Inez Whipple Wilder. But, you know... Leading expert in two very disparate fields. Awesome name. Seems like a very cool lady. Um, has done a lot of research. There was also she did some like cat anatomy. <laughs> that the t- the the first se- the first sentence of this paper was just like, one day I was injecting a cat what? and <laughs> it was like what? How how are you oh starting a paper gosh. like this? Um, Back in the day when there were probably no regulations for, like, how to treat animals or, like, specimens or anything, right? Oh, my gosh. Exactly. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, let me find it because it's, like, so funny. Well, I mean, maybe not funny. But just, like, The title, the paper's called An Anomaly in the Portal Circulation of the Cat. Portal? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Like a, I didn't read this paper. It sounds like a space, like some weird space-time continuum within a cat. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. But the, okay, the first line of this paper is, While injecting the circulatory system of a cat recently, I noticed, and then dot, 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 they found it. <laughs> but it's just like... Oh my gosh, that poor cat. And then they talk about like the cat's, the cat's disposition as a kitten. Aw, it's cute. I mean, I could write that. They're cute. Yeah. Super cute. Done. (laughs) Even as a kitten, it had never tolerated petting. And to quote the informant, a member of the family of the donor, quote, it was the strangest acting cat he had ever seen. (laughs) That's so funny. I love old timey papers. People who have met like three cats. (laughs) Making all these generalizations about them. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Um, so, yeah, that is my story about Inez Whipple Wilder. That's cool. I love, like, yeah, there's so many people who have just contributed, you know, kind of more generally to their fields and still mm-hmm. had significant contributions. Um, that's really neat. I like the transition from fingerprints to salamanders. <laughs> 
Yeah. One day they were just like, I'm bored with fingerprints. Let's study these cool creatures. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Let's get outside. We need to go outside more. Or maybe they were like, hey, do salamanders have fingerprints? (laughs) You know. (laughs) And like, no, but let's keep studying them. (sighs) That's cool. Yeah. Should we work? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right. So this is our women who work section where we talk about uh, badass ladies making science history today. And Emlyn, we got we're on theme this week because are we? (laughs) I'm trying to pull up my notes. (laughs) I forgot I have notes that I need to pull up. (laughs) Um. Yes. So. Okay, so I have a couple bad jokes. Okay, well, I have one bad joke, but I'm just going to say okay. this is a. I found today's shout out goes to someone. Okay, oh my God, oh my God. I have to start over. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> I just want to say I. it's fun when we pick similar themes for our, both of our segments, and it's always accidental because mm-hmm. I picked a zoologist yeah. um, this week too. Yes, and my bad joke that I would have made regardless of who you picked is that, hey, we should start calling this the women who worm section. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because today's uh, shout out goes to someone who who wrote a study about a cool worm. Great. Love just it. like that. Remember when you talked about the giant worm? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... The tremors yeah, like worm. Yeah, so now you have two stories. We should make this the women who worm seg- section of the podcast. <laughs> Sounds very restricting. Okay, okay. Anyway, that's my really bad joke. <laughs> that is so convoluted. It. Um, but today's shout out goes to Maite Aguado, who is a senior researcher in a team of researchers that published a paper this week describing in detail the internal workings of a recently discovered branching worm. Okay. Ooh. This worm, its species name is Ramacillus multicaudata which means the many-tailed branching psyllis, where psyllis is a group of worms. Um, And it's a worm with one head and sometimes hundreds of tails. Emlyn. Why? (laughs) Yes, I'm sorry. I can't even with it. Okay. It's pretty crazy, and it's one of only two branching worms ever discovered, um, the first of which was discovered, I think, in the 1800s, and I don't think anyone's ever been able to find that species again in our time. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So this looks wild. Yeah. Did you I'm look it up? It. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It looks like um, like a piece of a plant. Yeah, like a plant. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So I'm gonna back up a little bit. So, Dr. Guado is a curator and professor at the Biodiversity Museum at the University of Göttingen in 
Germany. And Mm -hmm. from what I can tell, she was on a team of researchers that first described this worm in 2012 and has been uh, studying this very unique creature since, though it was discovered by someone else because um, who was studying sea sponges. And it's like, oh, Hmm. why? So why would a sea sponge researcher discover this worm, huh? Well, because this worm lives inside of sea sponges. It's a very weird worm. So Hmm. it was discovered in 2006 in Darwin Harbor, Australia, which is just like, of course, there's a place named after Darwin where this weird ass worm Mm -hmm. is from. Um, and so this, oh, I forgot to write his name, but there's a researcher discu- uh, studying sea sponges and worms that live in sea sponges. And he was looking at a type of sponge that has uh, all these hollow channels, essentially. Mm, and okay. within the sponge, uh, he found that each channel had a worm tail. Like, he could see the tail of a worm coming out of all these different sponge channels. And he was just like, where's the worm heads? Like, oh, maybe they're in the center of the sponge or something, right? But when they took it back mm-hmm. to the lab to dissect it and figure out what was going on, they found that there was just one worm with many, like, one worm head that with a bunch of different tails all going through all the channels of the sponge. It's wild. It, yeah, it looks like it's just like monopolizing the sponge. Like it just branches off for each, yeah, like branch in the sponge. Yeah, like a little. It's all. It looks like a plant, like um those seaweed plants yeah. you put in fish tanks almost, but it's white. But it's like got all these mm-hmm. like, yeah. So and has these like eyes, right? In the the head. So their paper, uh, the paper published a few weeks ago by Dr. Guado and her team, um, was published in the Journal of Morphology. And so they've described this worm, you know, since two thousand six, and other papers, and done some like genomics on it and stuff. But this paper in particular. Use a multitude of techniques, including live observation, as well as histology, immunohistochemistry, microcomputed tomography, and transmission electron microscopy to study the internal anatomy of these branching, of this Hmm. branching worm. And they had a couple of really interesting findings, which are, uh, some of which are unique to this worm. So the first is that when the body divides, like when the worm produces a new tail, uh, the internal organs also divide, which has never been observed in any animal ever before. Oh, yeah. So like the intestine will go into the new tail. Like, divide oh. into the new tail. It's not just an appendage without organs. Like, this thing has organs extending throughout the new tail, too. Gotcha. Um, they also possess a unique anatomical structure. It's like a... I couldn't get a real picture for this in my head, but it's described as a muscular bridge that forms between the different organs in these new tails. Um... 
And they branch as adults, not in early stages of life. Like they form these tales throughout their whole life, not just when they're young. Mm -hmm. And their reproductive unit, which is called a stolen, is similar to other worms in this family. But it forms at the end of their tail. But I just thought it was crazy. So this is like a piece of their tails becomes a reproductive unit. Which, um, like, in this piece of tails will grow gonads, which are either female or male, and then they break hmm. off and go find other gonads. And they do this, these stolons, or what they're called, they have eyes and they have a brain. Oh, my God. Yeah, and then they'll go find, so it's like this little piece of a worm with eyes and a brain, and either male or female gonads, will go swim and find other stolons, and then they release their eggs and sperm to reproduce. Hmm. So, but they have, like, a bunch of these, right? Because they have multiple tails. Yeah. So it's pretty weird. Um, I'm looking at a, vid- a video of it, and it's It's wild. crazy, yeah. So some questions that they still have are... They, so they have an intestine that seems to be functional, but they've never found any food in the intestine of these worms. So they're like, huh. how? what are they eating? When are they eating? Etc. And they're also interested in learning more about how circula- circulation and uh, nervous system cu- communication works throughout the whole worm. So these are two mm-hmm. things that they're still kind of investigating, but um, but they found some pretty neat things in their current study just in regards to the internal anatomy of this very, very unique creature that might be able to tell us about nervous system evolution, you know, like, why aren't there more branching creatures? <laughs> what weird things have evolved to help a creature actually form new body parts throughout its whole life you know things like that yeah so anyway that's my shout out for today the branching worm this is asmr for my eyes is that is that a thing you like watching it just watching i'm just watching it slowly move around this sponge oh i haven't seen a video of it i've only seen pictures Ooh, gross. No, there's a video of it. It's so cool. Yeah, so it kind of just looks like a plant or a fungus or lichen almost that's like grown throughout a sponge, but it's a worm. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when you see it moving, yeah, it looks like a worm. Like yeah, a worm. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very cool. It's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. No, it's it's so... I think it's amazing how much we still don't know about so many right creatures and we're always discovering new things and new species and new ways of like life yeah like new life yeah forms um just like inspirational and very exciting and that i loved it that's a great shout out and that was a i'm mesmerized yeah yeah i'm in love and I hope that my women who worm joke was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was worth it. I am pleased. Cool. 
Well, that is our wormy <laughs> episode. Right, yeah, um, I just like. Yeah, it's a very like our, our slimy, yeah, anatomical episode. episode or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of morphology, right. which is awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sometimes we just, you know, we're just in sync. I we're know, in tune yeah. with one another. Like I saw a study about Chernobyl radiation, and I almost did that one. I was just like, I don't have the energy to to describe this. <laughs> I just want to talk about a cool worm. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just want to talk about yeah. a cool worm and that's fine <laughs> and that's what this is yeah about. yeah maybe we're biased well, thanks. but you know probably <laughs> well thanks everybody for listening about our cool worms and our cool yeah. ladies um share this with a friend if you think they might be interested you know we don't promote the podcast so we love it when you help us out and spread the word for sure um Thank you to Artichoke for our awesome theme music and Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art. And as always, go, go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. <laughs> stupid. Bye. I love these worms. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil.